Hello and welcome to our review of the lupus literature for February. We're bringing you these podcasts every month now so you can keep up to date on the latest literature and expert opinion. My name is Ed Vital. I'm the chair of the Lupus Forum. I work at the University of Leeds. So today we're going to review some of the key papers that were covered in the Lupus Forum in February. These were selected by my colleague Laurent Arnaud, who unfortunately couldn't make it today, which is why I'm discussing them on my own. So there are five papers that I wanted to discuss, and they all focus on different aspects of the patient experience of lupus, as well as some recent clinical trial data. And the first of these is about a new system for categorizing patients with lupus erythematosus. Um, so this is a study by Arkani et al. It was published in Clinical Rheumatology. So one thing you may have seen in the lupus previously is a description of two different types of lupus symptoms. Type 1 lupus symptoms that refer to the typical inflammatory symptoms like rash, nephritis, arthritis. But then type 2 symptoms have been described as those that are less easily measured with disease activity instruments, less sure whether they respond to immunosuppressants, which are things like widespread pain, fatigue and depression. So that's been described in the past. And what these authors did was they developed a score for the type 2 symptoms in a cohort um, using data from the SF36. So this is a new way of assessing type 2 symptoms. So they took items from the SF36 that one had been measured in this cohort of patients. There were 50 patients with 100 visits to develop a type 2 lupus symptom score that goes from 0 to 31. And they defined a cutoff as point score of 14 to classify patients having type 2 symptoms. They also measured the sleeve eye to measure the more typical inflammatory symptoms of lupus. And therefore, they could classify their patients in different ways. Those with minimal symptoms, 39% of their cohort, those with type 1 symptoms, 37% of their cohort, those with type 2 symptoms, 9% of the cohort, and those with mixed type 1 and type 2 symptoms, which is another 15%. And what they found is that those with type 2 symptoms were older, um, they had longer disease duration, they did not find any difference in any immunology, immunology markers between the cohorts. So whether that's the typical immunology markers like antibody titers as a complement, but also this is a group that has a great deal of expertise in measuring um, gene expression and interferon modular scores. And they didn't find any of those to be different between the cohorts. So, um, I think what this tells us is that it, it gives us a new way to measure these symptoms. And I think it's quite important in clinical trials because SF36 data is usually available in clinical trials. So this is a score that could be used in those trials to assess another group of lupus symptoms that might not be addressed using SLEDIC, for example. It's, it's a different way to measure them than using fibromyalgia criteria. We never really know whether you can use fibromyalgia criteria well in people who have another disease, uh, because conceptually that's quite different. Um, I think this tells us in terms of the clinic, This it, it emphasizes the importance of thinking about these type two symptoms that are important to patients, as well as the more typical lupus symptoms that we already address. But in terms of using these data and this score in practice, we probably need a little bit more information from other follow-on research about whether assessing these symptoms in this way 
using the SF36 can tell us something useful in terms of trial outcomes and in terms of what therapies may be useful for these sorts of symptoms. So the next paper is one by Anne Clark and colleagues. So this is from the SLIC group. So, and it's about neuropsychiatric disease. So um, many of us will be aware of the SLIC cohort. The SLIC cohort is a large multi-center and international cohort that takes an inception cohort of patients. In other words, follows lupus patients from the point of diagnosis. Um, and that's really important um, because when you look at some of these observational studies, it can, it can often be very difficult to tell whether things are causal, whether one event caused another outcome or not. Um, and having inception data makes that much easier. So you get much more powerful um, signals from these from, from these analyses. And the SLIC cohort have published quite a series of papers that look at neuropsychiatric outcomes in various ways. And in this one, what they're looking at is the health economic impact of this disease. So neuropsychiatric disease in the lupus is extremely variable. You've got some patients who've got kind of mild cognitive defects, things that are actually quite difficult to measure, quite difficult to be clear about whether they're due to the lupus or, or not. There are some people who have much more severe manifestations, but those are still quite varied. Some people might have psychosis, some people may have neuropathies, they may have strokes, they may have seizures. So in this um, cohort, they analyzed a subset of SLIC who had health economic data, which is 1,697 patients with about 10 years follow-up. So it's powerful data, and they've got a lot of it. And they used this kind of quite complex multi-state modeling, and they also applied rules to the patients to determine whether the neuropsychiatric events that occurred should be classified as being related to the SLA or not related to the SLA. And that's described in the paper exactly how they did that, but it was quite detailed. So 956 of these patients did have neuropsychiatric events, about 32% of those were related to the SLA. Um, and there's a lot of detail in the paper about how this modeling was done, but as it's shown on the slide, the main outcome here was that the direct costs were about 1.5 times higher for patients who had neuropsychiatric events. And the indirect costs were about three to five times higher than that. And of all the different neuropsychiatric events, seizures and um, cerebrovascular disease were the worst. So my feelings about this was as an inception cohort, again, with longitudinal data, it's much more powerful that we can say that these costs were really related to the events that were being measured. It's much more robust than other work. Um, and that the people who had these neuropsychiatric events had a lot of healthcare costs, and they also had, from other data, a lot of poor quality of life. So it highlights this isn't a major unmet need. It's important because we're always talking about clinical trials in a lupus forum about new therapies, but the, such patients are often excluded from clinical trials. So it emphasizes the unmet needs to we need treatments that will prevent or improve these neuropsychiatric events as well as the other more typical outcomes of lupus. So the next study was done by C.C. Mock and colleagues um, who are a well-known group in lupus research and they were looking at the EULA and ACR classification criteria and organ damage. 
So um, there have been a couple of papers that have had this concept that in the older classification criteria that we used to use for lupus, like the old ACR criteria from 1987, for example, you would simply say out of 11 features, if the patient has four or more of them, then we classify them as having lupus. It's quite a binary thing, yes or no. The, the more, most recent criteria, the ULAR ACR criteria, they work in a bit of a different way. You get points for different features. So something like nephritis scores a lot more points than something like um, mouth ulcers. So um, that means that rather than simply saying yes or no to lupus, you can actually give them a score. And what a, a few studies have reported is, is that if you're, so in other words, if you're scored with lupus, yes, you've got lupus and you've got a high score on the classification criteria, are the outcomes different from somebody who just scrapes in with just having enough points? Um, and that's what's one of, that's what's one, this is another paper that's followed that approach. So they took a cohort of 562 lupus patients and they classified them according to a score on the, a point score on the ULAR ACR criteria of 20 or more, 392 of those cases, or of less than 20, which is the other 150 of those patients. And then they compared them for the amount of damage. So they measured the damage using the slick damage index. And what they found was that the patients who had a higher classification criteria score of 20 or more had also had more damage, particularly in SDI items related to renal, cardiovascular, dermatological, and gonadal domains of damage. So this is also helping us with the concepts that when the you know, there's, there, there, you can we can work out more impactful types of lupus from the way, from the classification criteria. This is a cross-sectional study, so unlike the slick data that we were looking at earlier, there are still some questions about causality here, about what caused what. Um, these people had already sustained the damage at the time that the ULR ACR criteria were, were collected. So we do need a bit more longitudinal data to tell us what we really want to know. Because what I think this is really alluding to is that when you're early in the lupus, when we're in the clinic diagnosing people with lupus for the first time, and we're assessing those criteria to say whether somebody has lupus. If they're scoring very highly on the classification criteria, should we be saying it's not just lupus, this is lupus that's going to cause a lot of damage and it's going to be difficult to control and therefore be thinking about a different treatment strategy from the word go because of the classification criteria that they have. I think that is probably correct, but I think we need a little bit more data to tell us that. But I think the concept being put forward here is, is, to, is, is important, which is to think about different varieties of lupus early in the disease process. Okay, this is a paper by Thibault et al. And this is about um, fatigue in quality of life in lupus. So it's a mediation analysis. So what does this mean? So this is a technique that's being applied to a lot of epidemiology studies at the moment. And again, it's it's about this issue of how do we assign causality to different features. So um, <clears throat> when you take a cohort of lupus patients who are observational, what you'll often see is, of course, some people are quite mild, some people are moderate and some are quite severe. 
So if we look at different aspects of their lupus, like their joint pain or their depression or their quality of life or renal involvement or their drugs or their biomarkers and things like that, a lot of these different things will all come up together. There are some people who have all of them high and some people have all of them low. So what causes what? Um, are they related? Are they all just related to each other equally? Or are some of the variables working via some of the others? And that's what's been done here, is to try and understand whether one variable impacts another that impacts a third. And if we can work out that chain of causality, then it might tell us something about how to approach these, these different aspects of disease in the clinic. So that's called a causal mediation analysis. And they've chosen here to focus on um, three main symptoms, well, four, four, sort of four sort of variables here. One is having MSK flares, one is having depression, one is fatigue, and then the last one, the sort of dependent variable, is the health-related quality of life of the patient. And those were chosen for a specific reason, which is that a previous study that was done by Laurano had indicated that there were sort of clusters of patients around those particular symptoms. So it seems like these were the things that were important in determining the patient experience. They used a good data set. They had 336 patients who had longitudinal visits that had been followed up for two years. 28% of them had MSK flare, 29% of them had depression. And the basic approach, if you look at the paper, you'll see the, the little models that they were trying to analyze was to say, does MSK flare cause poor quality of life directly? Or does MSK flare cause fatigue, which then fatigue causes the poor quality of life? And then they did the same thing for depression. Does depression cause the quality of life directly? Or does depression cause fatigue? And then the fatigue causes the health-related quality of life to be poor. And in summary, they found substantial evidence that both the MSK symptoms and the depression were both having their effect on quality of life via fatigue. So about 50% of the effect of MSK symptoms on quality of life occur due to the fatigue, in other words. So um, there, there's a little bit of data on some other organ symptoms in there as well, not the full modeling, but there's a little bit of data about cutaneous disease and renal flares um, that weren't having as substantial effects as the MSK, the health risk, uh, the depression and fatigue. So it tells us, I think, that when, um, when patients are presenting with arthritis uh, or presenting with depression in our lupus clinics, these have big effects on quality of life, but to get that better, we have to think about the fatigue that person's experience. Fatigue is difficult to treat, but it can be treated. So um, if we don't look at fatigue, we're not going to be able to improve patients' quality of life very much when they present with these other problems. And this is the last study that we're going to talk about today, and this is an anaphrolium analysis. So we've, we've talked about quite a few of these that in the anaphrolimab data set, there are two phase three studies called TULIP1 and TULIP2 that both look at anaphrolimab versus placebo. But they've, those have been merged together to create a nice big data set of more than 600 patients that can then be used to understand other aspects of response. Um, and this is one of those. This is looking at LLDAS. So in, um, the, in most clinical trials of lupus, uh, and TULIP is no exception, you look at 
a population of patients who have active disease at baseline and you look at 52 weeks for response. So in other words, getting better by a certain amount. So in SRI4, we're looking for the dice score to improve by four points. Um, and with the Bickler, we're looking for the BILAG A and B scores to improve. So we know those things are meaningful. It's good to have your SRI, uh, your SLEDI improved by four points. But having your SLEDI improved by four points might not necessarily be enough for the person in the clinic. Because if your SLEDI score starts at 10, and after it's improved by four points, you're still at six, that might not be as good as you want the person to be. If your SLEDI score slices at 20 and it's improved to 16, that's definitely not as good as you want this patient to be. So this is now thinking about what's actually the goal in clinic. The goal in clinic is not just response. The goal in clinic is to get them really where they want to be. And I think a commonly accepted target, it, if you look, for example, at the ULAR treat target guidelines, but to get someone into LLDAS. So what's LLDAS? LLDAS is, is a lupus low disease activity statement. To get into LLDAS, you have to have a SLEDI score that is four or less. Those four points can't be coming from major organs. So they can't be coming from your kidneys, for example. They also can't be coming from anything that's new. So you can't have some, you can't have a new manifestation be called low disease activity. It's kind of small amounts of residual disease. The other thing is that's nice about the LLDAS is it doesn't just look at the SLEDI, it also looks at the therapy. So you can't be in LLDAS if you're on more than 7.5 milligrams of prednisolone. So you've got to have low disease activity measured and low prednisolone. And you also, your other therapies have to be in normal doses, stable, well tolerated. And that's what we're saying is, is the target for a patient. You have to have all of that true. So it, in, when you come to clinical trial data, if there were people who were pretty good, but they were on lots of steroids, and that's why their SLEDI score was pretty good, they don't count for this. So the first thing that you can do is look at simply um, who got LLDAS. So uh, at week 52, which is the primary endpoint of the study, it's about 30% of the people across this cohort. And that's both treatment arms, by the way, both placebo and anaphrolimab pulled together, about 30% of them got LLDAS overall, okay? And most of the people who had LLDAS were also SRI and Bickler responders, but the reverse wasn't necessarily true. So of the people who had an SRI4 response, only some of them were in LLDAS. Um, then the next thing you can do with LLDAS that's a bit more interesting is not just say whether you achieved it at 52 weeks, because that, that's important, and that was more likely on anaphrolimab than it was on placebo. But you can also look, uh, so at 52 weeks, it was about 30% of the anaphrolimabs who were in LDAS versus about 19% of the placebos. But the other thing you can do is look at the time they were in LLDAS, because that then starts to get much more important. So having LLDAS at one time point is, is, is well, that's good, but if you can sustain that state of affairs for three months, six months, 12 months, that's better. And there are studies, for example, from Michelle Petrie's group that, that, that tell us that the longer you spend in LLDAS, the better you're going to be for damage in the long term. Um, and so, again, when they looked at time in LLDAS, you also saw that it was better for anaphrolimab than placebo. The percentages of people who were achieving these long, these time, you know, 25% of the time in LLDAS, 50% of the time in LLDAS was lower. 
it. But you could all, as you looked at that building up over time, what you could see is that they were, you were getting more and more people achieving LLDAS as the year went on. So what my takeaway from this was, is that anaphrolimab is better at getting you in LLDAS and sustaining it over time, definitely. But actually, probably the first few months of the study, they were still trying to get there. They were still getting the disease activity coming down, steroid doses coming down. It's only towards the back end of the year that you could really see this sustained LLDAS occurring. So I reckon when we see people in the longer term extensions of these studies and longer term follow up, you'll start to see bigger and bigger effects. So important to think about in the clinic that this target, as we have more therapies and more tools at our disposal, that the aiming for these targets gets to be more important to check that people are not just responding, that they're getting really to where we want them to be. So um, that's the last paper for today. So thank you very much for listening. And as always, uh, the papers I discussed today and the slides you've just been looking at, those are all available at the website. You can download the PowerPoints for free to use in your teaching, um, in your journal clubs. The Clark, Mock and Morand papers, we have full slide sets, and the Arcani and Thibault papers are the single slide summaries like you've just been looking at that you find under the literature highlights. So you look, look on lupus-forum.com for all of those. And if you register on that website, then you'll get an email every time there's new content like this available to have a look at. And you can also follow us on Lupus Forum, or one word, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. So thanks again, and I'll see you next time.